If you turn with me this morning in your Bible back to the Gospel of John, we're going to pick it up where we left off, the Gospel of John, and I'm going to begin reading at verse, eight, uh, verse 19. We'll be looking specifically at verses 24 to the end of the chapter, but let's pick up our reading Verse 19, John chapter 20, this is the gospel. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, you know us, you know the week we've been through, you know maybe the morning that we've experienced, you know all the distractions, but Holy Spirit, thank you that you are able to grab our attention and to take these words and make them live to us so that we see Jesus and seeing him love him and worship him and gladly submit to him. We pray it in his name, amen. Brothers and sisters, Today we celebrate an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago, an event that um, unalterably changed uh, this, this world, uh, an event that took place outside of uh, Jerusalem in a little cemetery uh, where a man who had been dead for three days by his own power came to life and walked out of that grave in a glorified body, never to die again. Uh, this man had truly defeated death as he had answered the curse behind the sentence of death. And, and this man's resurrection 
was the dawn then of everlasting life breaking over a world that was locked in the darkness and bondage of death under the just sentence of God. You cannot overstate the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The shockwaves of that event are powerfully rippling still through time and space and will inevitably one day break forth into everything being made new. This truly, literally changes everything. And this event then is the touchstone for Christian truth, for the, the touchstone truth for Christian faith. Christ is risen is in many ways the essence of the Christian profession. We believe that Jesus Christ, born of Mary, son of God, truly died, was dead in a tomb, and was raised to life. D.A. Carson says, for John, as for all the early Christians, the resurrection of Jesus was the immutable fact on which their faith was based. And this morning, we're going to um, study together the story of one man's awakening to that immutable fact. The man's name, of course, is Thomas, affectionately called the twin. That's how he's referred to throughout the Gospels, the twin. And our story takes place um, a week after uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we saw, Jesus had appeared to the disciples the, uh, that first Sunday and, and had revealed himself to them, but Thomas wasn't there, and so Thomas spent a week in miserable unbelief, convinced unbelief, and now the, in our text this morning, Jesus Christ meets him and brings him to a living faith. And, and we're going to see that the point of this story is that Jesus Christ would also then meet us in his word and that we also would see him clearly and respond with this profession of faith. I don't really have an outline this morning because the story just unfolds and I think it's best to follow it that way. And so um, just let the, let the wonder of this, and, uh, of this story unfold in front of you and in, in, in your own life and heart this morning. Um, Thomas, we're told, in, in um, verse 20, uh, 25, uh, is invited by his, his fellow disciples, men that he knows, men that he trusts, men that he loves, men that he, he has not, they, they've, he's not known them to lie. They come and they, they say to him, we have seen the Lord, and they tell him the story. Peter and John had run to the tomb, and, and, they, and they saw the grave cloths lying there, and it was evident that Jesus had simply come out of them. No one had unwrapped Jesus. No one had assisted him in his resurrection. This was by the power of his own being. And so John and Peter go, and they see the cloths, and they believe because of the, the way the cloths are lying there. And it, it, the, the text clearly says they did not yet understand this from Scripture, but they believed what they saw. They believed the evidence. And so they come and they tell Thomas, who had not been there when Jesus had appeared. It's a note um, not to miss the evening worship service. And uh, commentators have pointed that out, right? What a, what a miserable week Thomas had uh, because he missed the evening of worship with Christ. I won't press that point. <laughs> Some other Sunday. But uh, Thomas refuses to believe. This is not, guys, listen, I, I would, I hope you're right. Um, 
he, he refuses to believe. It, it, is as, it is as fierce a confession of unbelief as you'll find. Unless I see his hands and I see the mark of the nail and put my finger into the wound and unless I put my hand into his side where the spear went, I will never believe. I don't know how you'd be more strong than that. More insistent. More determined in your unbelief. And so the, the, the question comes, why? why? Why is Thomas so fiercely opposed to believing what his friends, all of them reliable, told him had happened? Well, there are many reasons that people doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ even today. Uh, polls are taken, and, and increasingly people um, just smile and say no when they're asked, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose physically, bodily from the grave? No, they do not believe that. Many in our world don't believe it because they're secular materialists. They believe that the only thing that exists is things that can be seen or, or uh, somehow um, watched or, or touched, touched, right? That the material world is all that exists. Religion is just a myth made up to sort of help people sleep at night. There is no God. There are no miracles. So the resurrection story didn't happen because it couldn't have happened. The laws of the material world won't allow for it. And so it just, it just doesn't need to be bothered with. Well, clearly that's not Thomas. He's not a secular materialist. He's a, he's a first century Jewish man. He believes uh, in the beginning God made the heaven and the earth. He believes that the wind and the, wi and, and the waves uh, right, do his will. He's seen it happen. So he knows that um, miracles take place. He's seen hundreds of them. It's one of the reasons he had believed that Jesus was going to be the Messiah of God. Others uh, refuse to believe the resurrection for more personal reasons, and that is they just don't like the ramifications of it. The chief leaders in Jerusalem certainly would fit in that category. Uh, they were told by the Roman guards exactly what happened. We were there. There was an earthquake. Angels appeared the stone was removed. Um, Jesus has risen. So what did they do? Well, you read about it in Matthew 28. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, why don't they want to believe the resurrection? Because they don't like anything about the ramifications and implications of a resurrected Jesus. That would mean that he is everything that he said he was, and, and they simply don't want to deal with that. And so they give money to the guards and tell them what to say, and, and that's how the story unfolded from there. But again, that's not Thomas. There's nothing in the world he would more happily believe than the resurrection, but he refuses to believe um, because, well, that's the question, I suppose. 
Why is he so stubborn in his unbelief? Why so resolute? Why so fierce? Why so almost angry about it? Well, I think um, we can, from what we know about Thomas, Thomas is, is, a, is a plain man, a bit of a pessimist, and he suffered a broken heart. We don't hear a lot about Thomas in the gospel accounts. He's only mentioned twice in the gospel of John, and um, where he speaks, and, and both times it's in the last week of Jesus' life. So the first time is in John chapter 11 where uh, Jesus and the disciples are off and they receive news that Lazarus is sick and Jesus stays where he is for two more days. And then he says to his disciples, let us, uh, let us go back to Judea. And uh, the disciples say, John 11 verse 8, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you are going back? You see, they realize that the crowds love Jesus, but they're also very um, aware of the fact that the leaders, the men who had power, hate Jesus and want to kill Jesus. And so they're astonished that Jesus wants to go back to Bethany right in the a suburb of Jerusalem. And Jesus answered them, he says, well, I have to, I have to go and awaken him. John eleven sixteen. then Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now it's possible that that was said with a, um, you know, a voice full of bravado. Gentlemen, let us bravely go and face our death with Jesus. Sort of like what Peter would say, right? That would be a Peter speech. I don't think it's how he meant it at all. Uh, when I read this, I can't help but think that he sounds a lot like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. <clears throat> right? I guess we might as well go die with him. Now, he believes in Jesus. But you get the sense that Thomas sees himself as a realist. He understands the plain things, the way things actually are. And, and, and the way things are is that the men with power in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus, and they have the ability to do it. And Jesus doesn't seem to understand this. A few chapters later in John 14, verse 5, we hear from Thomas again. John 14, Jesus, uh, they've had the Last Supper. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. It's an incredibly moving time. And then Jesus says this this strange thing in Thomas's here. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, John 14. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Here again, you can sense exasperation. Thomas seems to be a plain man. He, he, he doesn't like riddles. He doesn't like enigmas or mysteries. And Jesus seems to delight in them. And so when Jesus comes out with this, this thing about, I'm going and then uh, I'm going to prepare a place and you know the way, He's like, 
don't even know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? It, there, there's exasperation here. He, he just he doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. Lord, just speak plainly. And then Jesus was crucified. And whatever Thomas might have imagined could have happened, he'd never imagined this. This is the worst possible death. It's, it's the most horrific nightmare. This is the death of the damned. Every Jewish man knows this. It is the most shocking, horrifying ending possible. And it's the end of everything that Thomas had hoped for. Everything that Thomas had believed in. Had given his life to. It's, it's hard for us to imagine. We know how the story ends. But, but just try to imagine the overwhelming, crushing disillusionment of the disciples when Jesus was crucified. I mean, it was so so blatantly obvious, Jesus had failed. He had failed. The enemies had won. His death on a cross meant they had been wrong about who he was and what he came to do. And not just wrong, but devastatingly, utterly, irrefutably wrong about the most essential thing that that they believed in. They thought he was God's Messiah. They thought he had come to rescue Israel, to save God's people. They were convinced that was true. And now it was absolutely, irrefutably not true. He was dead And this is behind, I believe, Thomas's refusal to believe. He's a plain man. He, he deals in cold, hard, plain facts. And there was nothing more cold, hard, and plain than the fact that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried in a tomb. And there was no Jesus to raise him. No one to rescue him. And so his faith, Thomas's faith had died when Jesus died. And the pain, the disillusionment, the pain of that, of that disillusionment was, was overwhelming, too much to bear. D.A. Carson says this, this is the doubt of someone who has suffered massive religious disappointment. And he refuses to be snookered again. I think you see in, in Thomas's response, there's, there's anger, a sense of betrayal. People will experience us sometimes when a, when a loved one whom they had really relied upon, a, a spouse, dies suddenly and unexpectedly, and they can sense a, a feeling of betrayal. How could you do this to me? How could, you, how could you abandon me? Even though it's irrational, we tell ourselves it shouldn't be there. It's just an emotion that can, that can come. Well, think about Thomas. Jesus had profoundly failed him. This is exactly, you see, what Thomas told Jesus was going to happen. You go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And he went to Jerusalem, and they killed him. Exactly like he said was going to happen. 
And so when the other disciples come and say, we've seen the Lord, he's, he just can't hear it. He will not hear it. The excruciating pain of, of the, the disillusion and the betrayal is it's just too much. He's not going there again. They think they saw the Lord. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Most likely they saw his ghost. If you remember in those days, people um, believed they, they, that uh, the, the spirit of a person would, would, would hang around for a while. In fact, if you remember when uh, Peter was released, I think Acts 4, and um, he, he comes and he knocks on the door of where the people were gathered, and, and uh, they think they saw his ghost. So, that, so they believe in that, in that reality that's, that's, that's given. And so Thomas is, is very likely saying, maybe they saw his ghost. Either way, it, doesn't, it, it does not matter. I'm not going to believe until I have hard, hard evidence. Until I see the mark, and not just see it, but I put my finger in the mark. Right where the nail went, that's where my finger's going to go. And if I, I need to put my hand into his side, and if you don't give me that, I will never believe. Never. <laughs> See, Thomas is done with games. He's done with mysteries. He wants nothing more with enigmas. What he wants, if you're going to ask me to believe in Jesus, I need a real resurrection. He's determined in his mind. He's going to settle for nothing less than a personal meeting with the very same Jesus he saw nailed on that cross. The very same body that was crucified would need to stand in front of him. He doesn't want a vision of Jesus. He doesn't want to see a ghostly figure. He doesn't, he's not interested in the spirit of Jesus. He saw the body of Jesus nailed to a cross, and until he sees that body in front of him, alive, with the marks there to prove it's really him, he's not going to believe it. In fact, he will not believe, it won't even be enough to see it. He's going to have to put his, his hand into the wound. Now, in many ways... Uh, we can applaud Thomas in this. There are people who've professed to be Christians who've taught that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not a necessary part of the Christian faith. And so if you remember the history of the OPC, left the mainline uh, church, the mainline PC uh, Presbyterian church, Back in 1936, in part, large part, because the mainline church was saying that as a minister of the gospel, you could believe in a, some sort of vague idea of resurrection. Uh, you could teach that the, uh, the, the spirit of Christ was let loose in the world and that, and that people experienced the, the, the living Jesus in some way as, as they came to um, accept his teaching. But you didn't have to believe that the body of Jesus actually came out of the tomb. I mean, that was one theory. If you wanted to believe that theory, knock yourself out. But, but you, you shouldn't require a minister of the gospel to believe that the body of Jesus actually was resurrected and glorified. Well, Thomas would have made a lousy liberal. Because he's not buying it. You see, if everything depends on the body. Either death is conquered or it's not conquered. Either the curse is removed or it's not removed. Let's not play games with the most essential things. If a non-resurrected Jesus was just a, a failure, if death really was his end, then he's of no hope and no help to Thomas. So we can applaud him. He, he, gets, he gets what is at stake. 
And we can also laud him for insisting on evidence. There are many gullible Christians who are willing to believe just about anything without a shred of evidence, particularly scriptural evidence. Just tell an amazing story and you can sell lots of books. And that's just true. So um, we can laud him for saying, I'm not believing without evidence. There's sort of an idea out there that, that uh, the unique thing about faith is, is that it's a leap into the unknown. It's, it is, uh, faith uh, is what you do after you've run out of evidence. And now you just make this choice, this bold, brave human choice to leap into the unknown. And, uh, and there's something uh, remarkable and, and unique and, and praiseworthy about faith. Just, you just throw yourself out there. Well, Thomas isn't doing it, and neither should you. If there's no evidence, you're just a fool. So you see, Thomas is not interested in faith for faith's sake. He's interested in truth, in truth. And if Jesus is dead, if his body is still in the grave, then Jesus was not telling the truth because it was just a few days ago that Jesus had said in Thomas's hearing, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if he was dead, he was none of those things. And so if Thomas is going to be persuaded, Jesus is going to have to come and reveal himself. And it is precisely, you see, then Thomas's conviction, his anger, his sense of betrayal, his profound disillusionment, his steadfast unbelief that makes the following scene so dramatic. Eight days later, probably by Jewish counting, a Sunday again, Thomas is with them. He doesn't share their faith, but he's not ready to leave their company. And then suddenly Jesus is there. Where would you want the camera to go? Right to Thomas's face. He's just there. The doors are locked, but Jesus has a glorified body. And it, it, it is able to do things that a non-glorified body cannot do. But it is a real, physical body. It's a living, breathing, talking, tangible Jesus. It is not a ghost. And he speaks in Jesus' voice and, and tone and says, peace be with you. And then Jesus turns directly to Thomas, who may have been trying to sneak around behind Peter. I don't know. Because there had to be conviction and wonder and awe and fear. And Jesus says to Thomas, Put your finger right here, Thomas. See my hands? Why don't you put your finger right here? And see my side here? Take your hand, Thomas. Just put it right here. What would you have done? I would have broken down weeping. How could I not believe Jesus? How could I doubt this, this astonishing, astounding person? And Jesus rebukes him 
and invites him in the same thing. Isn't that what the gospel does? It rebukes us and invites us. He rebukes him. Do not disbelieve, Thomas. Thomas's disbelief was not okay. It was, it, was a, it, was a, it, was a, it was his failure, not Jesus' failure. It was his un, un, inability to, to understand the scriptures and, and uh, his, his commitment to, to live by what he could understand and what he could get his hands on and, and uh, to make sense of instead of living by the word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It was not okay. And Thomas knew, knows it's not okay. But Jesus calls him then to, to believe. You see, it's... It, the wonderful thing here is Jesus knew every word that Thomas had spoken. Jesus had not been there. And Jesus takes those words, he takes those demands made by this, this puny creature made from dust, and as graphic as Thomas had been trying to make a point, Jesus meets him every step of the way. Put your finger here, put your hand here. This is my body which is broken for you, Thomas. Believe. And Thomas collapses. The condescending grace and love of Jesus Christ. So pure and firm and gracious and yet strong. And Thomas collapses and answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This is, um, D.A. Carson points this out, and I'd, I'd never thought of this before, but, but this is an unusual response. The, it would make sense if Thomas was shocked. It would make sense if Thomas would say, it's you, right? You, you are alive. I'm so sorry I didn't believe it. I'll never doubt again. But, but he claims Jesus as God. Now again, think of a Jewish man who has been taught all of his life that no one stands in the presence of God. God is a consuming fire. He is thrice holy. No one goes into his presence, not just the high priest once a year into the, into the holiest place, and that only with blood, only once a year, and with a rope tied around his ankles in case he messes up. No one goes into the presence of God. And yet Thomas, seeing Jesus, realizes that God has come to him, the sinner. That God and man are reconciled. And he claims Jesus as my God. Right there in the presence of God. And maybe some of the things Jesus had said are beginning to make sense. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. Those, those mysteries, those enigmas that he couldn't quite make sense of suddenly maybe are, are, are coming all true. Clearly, in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, Thomas sees deity. Only the true Son of God could be raised from the dead in a glorified body by his own power. And so Thomas worships and claims this Jesus for himself, the Jesus who suffered death and who bore those wounds and rose from the grave to reconcile sinners to God, Thomas owns and claims. 
And friends, that is the appropriate response to the gospel. I think that's why uh, John is nearly done. I mean, this in some sense is the end of the gospel of John. This is sort of the climax that everything's been moving toward. This sort of profession of faith. This is how people should respond to Jesus. Adoration, worship, submission, joy, praise, trust, confidence, delight. Everyone should respond to Jesus this way. And we're called to respond to Jesus this way. You see, one of, the, one of the things that is unfortunately true is that we see like that blind man. Remember when Jesus healed the blind, the blind man and he puts some mud in his eyes and says, what do you see? And he says, I, I see men that kind of look like trees. It was just foggy. And so Jesus did it again and, and, and the sight was clear. There, there are a lot of, of people, Christians, and, and this is a growth thing for us. So, but but we, it could, we could settle for a, a foggy Jesus. We, we believe in him, but, but, but Jesus is not concrete and tangible. Um, he's, just, he's just sort of foggy and fuzzy and, and, and flirts around the edges of our life. Thomas wasn't going to settle for that. He needed tangible, concrete, 3D, real Jesus. And friends, that's the Jesus that we can also know. That breaks through the cobwebs. It's, it's fascinating to me how Jesus responds to him. Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus is not saying they're what our modern ears might hear. Blessed are those who believe even though they don't have evidence. It's not, it is not what he's saying. Jesus is looking down into the corridors of time to those who are going to believe in his name on the basis of evidence but it's going to be eyewitness evidence. See, Thomas is going to be part of those eyewitnesses who saw all the things that took place and now testify to who Jesus is. And these eyewitnesses, you see, are our link to the historical data, to this very Jesus. And John then, understanding what Jesus was saying, immediately in his gospel, goes to exactly this, verse, 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. That this book stands as all the evidence that you and I need to see the real Jesus, not a fuzzy, foggy figure in our mind who flirts around the, the, the external borders of our life, but a, but a Jesus who stands exactly right in front of us in his glory, in his goodness, in his saving grace and power, the Jesus who actually went to a cross, a real cross, and has real marks in his hands to prove it, and that Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. And this Jesus now has been raised from the dead as the, the evidence of his victory and the accomplishment of his work. And he has now ascended to the right hand of God. He is the living one. 
And if you know this Jesus, if you love this Jesus, if you, if you say what Thomas says, my Lord and my God, you have the absolute confidence of knowing that you've been reconciled to the Father and the God who rules this universe loves you and rules it for your good, and that makes all the difference in the world. Friend, my, my question to you from the text this morning is, in, is, what Jesus are you believing in? What Jesus do you know? See, if we believe in the resurrected Jesus that Thomas saw, our response will inevitably be, Lord God, my Lord, I want to submit to you. My God, I want to trust in you. I want to know you. I want to worship you. I want to obey you. I want to delight in you. Jesus, I love you. That will be the response of, a, of, of someone who sees Jesus. And if that's not you this morning, then I, I just I want you to know, at least acknowledge there's something more for you. That, that whatever, wherever you are, maybe you're just in the beginning of a Christian life. Maybe you're, um, you, you've, you've you, you have your faith, but you're busy with other things. I, I just want you to, to sense that, that until we get here, you see, we, until, we, until we embrace my Lord and my God, until we embrace Jesus that way, we haven't really seen him. And this Easter, this, uh, this, this gospel age, which is an Easter age, don't, don't remain in your unbelief. Jesus says to you, don't disbelieve. Don't disbelieve. Believe. Let Jesus break through the fog and come and claim him as your God. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we want to see Jesus. It's the most important thing in our life. Oh, Father, I thank you so much that you loved us and you gave your son. Jesus, I thank you that you loved us and you gave your life. Thank you for all the glory of the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were put to death for our sins and you were raised to life for our justification. That you've reconciled us to the Father, that you've ascended to your God and our God, your Father and our Father. Father, I pray that this morning we could receive that truth into our heart. Lord, I, please help us to see the beauty, the glory, the love and grace and strength of Jesus Christ. That he becomes increasingly real and tangible in our life. That, that we love him not out of duty, but we can't help it. And that sin is becoming odious and, and just putrid to us because it's so contrary to who Jesus is and, and his love for us and all that he promises to us that we can see through the lies of the devil and call them lies and rebuke him and flee from him. And that we could love others in Jesus' name gladly and freely, taking the risk bearing whatever hurt and shame and pain might come because you've loved us and you love us still. And you walk with us, you feed us, you wash us, you comfort us. 
You give us strength when we have none. You forgive us. And one day, Lord Jesus, you will embrace us in your presence. Jesus, I thank you. That is not sentimentalism. That's the wonder of the gospel. Give us hearts to receive it and to believe it, be transformed by it. Father, if there be any here today who have never come to Jesus this way, I pray that today would be that day, that they would not be lost in the presence of such great glory, in the presence of such a great gospel. If, if we ignore so great a salvation, how can we be saved? So, Father, we ask all this. Thank you for Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.